1 John 5, verses 1 through 3. Let's hear God's word. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence with us now. <clears throat> we ask your Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts and minds that our wills would come away uh, convicted and desirous to serve you uh, more completely in the week ahead. Lord, we pray too for Pastor Kaiser. We pray that you would give him strength. We know that he didn't sleep well and that he was sick. So we pray, Father, that you would uh, have your ministering angels give him strength and that he would uh, be patient and kind, loving, and uh, exemplify all that an elder in Christ should. We thank you, Father, for your uh, blessing us with him, and we do miss him. We thank you now for this time, and we uh, gather in your name and for your sake and to your glory. We pray, Lord, please uh, speak your word to us. In Christ's name, amen. The title of the message is, Obedience is Love. Obedience is very important to God. <clears throat> and it is much maligned in today's world. Now, this is understandable outside of the church. I think obedience is always maligned outside of the church. And yet, more and more, obedience within the church is being maligned. Obedience to those in the church in authority, obedience to God, and obedience to His Word. Uh, all of these are under attack. Now, I don't think this is unusual. You can't read the Bible without seeing that God's Word and God's commandments always are under attack by those that want to be freed from them. And so, uh, we do not live in a unique age. We will always have this battle on this earth as long as sin is not uh, entirely crushed. And so, until that time, we will fight. I loved the song we just sang, Church, uh, Christ, Arise. Uh, this is what we must do. We must stand militantly against sin in our society and in our own hearts and lives. Now, before I examine this text, and this actually is more a jumping-off point, this text, I will address a lot of the content, but it's more of a topical sermon. I want to first address, though, four states that man finds himself in, in which obedience and disobedience have different consequences. So, we begin in the garden, we begin with the state of innocence. Genesis 2, starting at verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Genesis is so succinct in its story, it's hard to believe there is so much content to be unpacked from the book of Genesis, and especially these first few chapters. But right here, God commands Adam, work 
Don't eat from that tree or you will die. Very, very simple commands. Yet, Adam chose to disobey. So see, Adam had a choice of both good and evil in the garden prior to the fall. He and Eve both experienced this brief period of time when man was good and could do good, and yet man was good and could do evil. He chose evil. Obviously, he didn't know the full consequences of that, or at least he didn't care, and so he chose evil. He chose disobedience to God, and it resulted in death, temporal death and eternal death. Though neither was immediate, both were a foregone conclusion from the time of his disobedience. So that is the state of innocence. That's the first state. Then we have the second state, and that's the state into which he catapulted himself and all of mankind after him, and that is the fallen state, the state of sin. So now let me read just a couple chapters or a couple chapters on here in Genesis 6. I'll read to you from uh, 6.5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So man now had gone from a period where he could freely choose between good and evil to a situation in which he only chose evil and he liked it. Now, that is the state that we are still in today, and many people, including many within the church, don't like hearing the fact that fallen people can do no good thing. But that's because they've embraced our cultural definition of good and evil. That is not the biblical definition of good and evil. The biblical definition of good requires that God be honored in the doing of it that he be the objective, the glory be the objective of the good that you're doing. And so unless God is that good goal, that good objective, what these people have done is not good. It's evil. So that's the fallen state. So we go from where man had free choice to do either good or evil to where fallen man can only do evil, ever and only evil. And God destroyed every being on earth except Noah and his family because of that. Then we move into the third state, and Adam and Eve were in this state, Noah and his family were in this state, and this is the regenerated state, the state of forgiveness. So now, in the state of forgiveness, you return, man returns to being able to do both good and evil. Taken out of the fallen state, we are forgiven, we are not yet glorified, and so we can do both good and evil now. All of our good is tainted by sin because sin still dwells in us, and there's still this desire to serve ourselves instead of God. But we can do good. There is good there, and it comes from the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And yet we can also do evil. The wickedness this we do is real. Yes, it's covered by the blood of Christ, but it is no less real. And so, as regenerated believers, we can choose to do both good and evil, just as Adam and Eve in the garden did. And think about the difference, though, in the consequences. What were the consequences for Adam and Eve's merely eating a piece of fruit that was forbidden? 
All the sin that we experience was the result of that. Eternal death was the result of that. What is the consequence if we sin? It depends, of course, on the severity of the sin, right? We all sin every day. There is no one who does not sin. Yet, the degree of our sins, the severity of our sins, might be very small. And so, because we suffer no immediate consequences because of our sin, we might think we've gotten away with something. And we might think, delude ourselves into thinking, that it just doesn't matter. And likewise, when you do something good as a forgiven person, does the sky open up and cast its sunlight down upon you when you don't do something good? Not usually. So we can grow tired of doing good. We don't see the immediate benefit, especially in our age, in this age of immediate gratification. We want the consequence immediately, not typically in our lives, in the lives of those other sinners that need to be rebuked for their sin. But in all of our lives, we want the immediate consequence of what we're doing good to be visibly accruing to our benefit. We want to see it. We want to taste it. We want to be edified by it. We don't trust God and His Word in saying that we are. God's Word clearly tells us that as the forgiven, as believers, when we sin, we are diminished. And we are attempting to diminish God. And yet when we obey, when we do good, when we serve selflessly, we are strengthened, we are edified, and we glorify God. So that's the third state. That's the state that takes up all from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21. So that's the state that the Bible's all about. Yet we have this fourth state, the resurrected state, the state of perfection. And let me read to you from Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So, in glory, we will live forever, and we will no longer sin. And this is wonderful. In that sense, we will be like God, because God cannot sin. And He will guarantee that we cannot sin. And we look forward to this day. So those are four states man finds himself on this earth in regards to obedience and disobedience. The innocent state has obviously passed for all of us. The fallen state persists, perhaps even for some of us, which is sad. But even those in the church might still find themselves in the fallen state. They may be deluding themselves into thinking that they're in the regenerated state. And then we have the resurrected state that we look forward to with anticipation and glory. Now, that's from man's perspective. And I wanted you especially to understand and, and uh, really have focused in your mind the consequences of disobedience in the state of innocence versus the consequences of disobedience in our time in a regenerate state. Vastly different. But yet, Christ's death was necessary. So see, now let's look at these states from Christ's perspective. 
from that one unique perspective that was given the God-man. State of innocence. He was in a state of innocence all throughout his earthly life, and he remained in that state of innocence up to and including his death, his good death. So he chose this. He chose then to embrace our punishment for the consequence of being pulled from the fallen state that we were in into the forgiven state that we moved into. Christ is responsible for every one of those. All of the penalty that was due to us in that fallen state fell upon him, even though he's the only one that was worthy of remaining in the state of innocence forever. So, now I want to move on to our text. And so you can again look at 1 John 5. And let me read verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love and keep when we love God and keep his commandments. And so the sentence is reversed. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments, we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments, we know that we love the children of God. This is the proper order. It can't be reversed, and yet many, many, many in the church try to reverse it. They try to say that by loving other people, you serve God. No. By obeying God, you are then free to love other people in the way that God has devised for us to love other people. And let me read to you a few uh, of Jesus' comments concerning this in John 14. In John 14, starting at verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Christ's love of us is conditional upon our service to him. Now, I didn't say that our justification is wrapped up in this. God has justified us for once and all time. But yet we speak of loving Christ and Christ loving us as if our sins make no never mind. Yes, Christ's love will persist through our sin. But will he show us that love in the midst of our sin? And how does he show us his love in the midst of our sin? Through rebuke, through the heavy hand of discipline. We don't want that kind of love, do we? We don't want it from our earthly fathers. We don't want it from our heavenly father. But yet that is the love that you will feel when you persist in disobedience as a forgiven Christian. And that's wonderful. That's God's grace at work in our lives. And let me go on to verse 3 here in 1 John 5. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Obedience to God and his word is the definition of God's love. And many in the church nowadays would not have you to understand God's love that way. They believe God's love is separated from obedience to him, and it's not. To disobey God or to disregard his commands is not loving. 
It is not loving God, nor is it loving your fellow man. To disobey God is to disrespect God. To disobey God is to show contempt for God. To disobey God is to do evil. That's just the simple matter. It's not to love God, it's to hate God. When I read John Owens in Indwelling Sin in the Believer, that's some of the text that really affected me the most was every sin is a fruit of being tired of God. Every sin we commit is a fruit of not wanting God to be that loving God. In that sin, we are choosing to hate God. We want distance from that loving God. And that's the world we live in. That's this topsy-turvy, forgiven state that we are in. In the Old Testament, obeying and disobeying so clearly had ramifications. And I've been listening through uh, Joshua, Judges, First and uh, Second Samuel, now up, um, uh, halfway through First Kings, all over the last couple of weeks. And it's just remarkable how often sin was just so prevalent in all their lives. I, in looking for instances of disobedience, you don't have to go far in Scripture to find them. You find many, many, many examples. Everybody has some example that's in the Bible, seems to have some example of disobedience. If you're mentioned in the Bible, it's not necessarily a good thing. A lot of people are embarrassed, perhaps, humbled by what they see in the Bible about themselves. But now we live in a time in the modern church where everything is going topsy-turvy. People are tired of living this forgiven life. They think it ought not be so hard. And so they're ministering to the broken in our midst and they eventually eviscerate the gospel in their attempt to minister to people because they say and they believe that the Bible just doesn't have the answers anymore. Rob Bell, many of you might know Rob Bell, have perhaps read some one or more of his books, but he's been publishing books since 05, so like 10 years. And uh, his first book was Velvet Elvis. I believe I listened to that on audio tape if I remember right, but it's been like five or six years ago. Um, it was kind of of the ilk all of the seeker-sensitive churches uh, were coming out with. And uh, these, some of them were okay. They were somewhat orthodox, a little unorthodox perhaps in practices, but yet they tended to be very critical of the church. And it was supposedly a welcome critical introspection at whether the church is really doing what's right for the people. And are we really truly out there ministering to people as we ought? So he went on to write other books, um, some of the more popular ones, Sex God in 07, Love Wins in 2011, and he just came out with this other one a few months ago called The Zimzum of Love. But this man founded a church in the suburbs of Grand Rapids, Michigan in 1999. Within three years, they moved into a mall. They had thousands of people coming. By 05, when he wrote Velvet Elvis, they had 10,000 people coming every week to two services. In those days, in 05, I would not say that he was overtly heretical, but yet he has become that over time. Uh, in Love Wins, about three or four years ago when they published it, he essentially rejects hell, the reality of hell. Um, he adopts a form of universalism because he is insisting that Christ alone just isn't cutting it. There are other paths to God. And then in this Zimzum of Love just a few months ago, he came out very openly for same-sex marriage. 
and uh, criticizing the church, really, for trying to hold to the standard of heterosexual marriage. The reason I bring all of this up is that this man was a very, very successful earthly shepherd of the sheep, but he was a wolf. When he published his book in 2011 and John Piper saw that he was dissing hell, his tweet was, farewell, Rob Bell. Very telling, because John Piper knew where that man was going. Now, he's Oprah Winfrey's lapdog, if you don't know that that's occurred. She's got a television show for him, and she just loves putting him in her pantheon of spiritual advisors. I want to read the next verse, and the reason I brought up this whole Rob Bell thing is concerning what we've just talked about about love and also what I'm going to talk about next. Verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. If we could only live by that one verse, day in and day out, that God's commands are not burdensome in our lives, we would be much, much more content and happy Christians. But, like Paul, we find ourselves kicking against the goads a bit more than we want to admit. God's commands are not burdensome, ought not to be. If God's commands are burdensome, it's because it's getting at sin in our lives. God's commands now appear to be great burdens to many in the modern church. And so they want to eject God's Word from its role in running Christian churches. His Word is burdensome to them. His Word is an embarrassment to them. And it's hard to believe that some people that attend church even read the Bible at all. I interact with lots of people in the comments on Facebook, and I'm just surprised at what they're liking and what they're choosing to comment on. It's people that proclaim that they know and love Christ. I just don't understand it. They, they aren't reading the same Bible I'm reading. Rob Bell began well. He began by empathizing with people's hurts. He began by trying to critically assess the church and where it's failing and adapt the church's message, its ministry and capability to the needs of our society. That's well and good. That's exactly what God wants us to do. But he went much further than that. He began by criticizing the church for its failures. Then he criticized the church for just being the church. Then he criticized God's word for being God's word and being burdensome. And now he's abandoned God. He doesn't even worship at an established church now. He and his uh, friends and his wife and, and this kind of collective have just this relationship that now they rely upon to get them through this spiritual battle that they're engaged in. And for them, hell is on earth. Hell isn't some future torment of eternal consciousness. It is just here where you're struggling to find God and to truly come to understand the God that loves everyone and is driving all of society to that conclusion. So now, let's look at another recent example of this trend, and it especially uh, talks to this point about commands being burdensome. This really did kind of set, set the tone of the message that I'm preaching, and what it is is I, I didn't become aware of it until yesterday morning. Uh, 
Pastor Kaiser posted this about 9 o'clock Friday night, and I didn't read it until early Saturday morning. And it was in a Facebook post. And let me actually read you the post. It's fairly brief. City Church in San Francisco is an interesting case study in the drift that can happen to even a Reformed church. Some years ago, it left the PCA for the more egalitarian RCA. That's the Reformed Church in America. They're the ones that put up with uh, the Crystal Cathedral uh, and uh, Schuler for a long time. But the feminist hermeneutic that allows for egalitarianism is the same hermeneutic being used for evangelical queer theology. So it is not surprising to now see them caving in on that issue. These are the steps to apostasy that can happen to any church if our ethics are not found in the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. Pray for a new reformation within evangelicalism. The word evangelical has lost its original meaning. Had anybody read that? Had anybody read that post? So not a whole lot. I'm glad I'm sharing it. Um, but uh, I want to share it in some depth here. I believe this letter from the senior pastor at City Church in San Francisco is just a work of propaganda art. And I really have to admire the man's ability to propagandize as well as he does. But I want to take this opportunity to kind of educate you, all of us, on the nature of this propaganda and just how evil and how insidious this is. Because I believe this man is walking right down the same road Rob Bell walked down. He's just a few years behind. So with that, let me read to you a few things. I have 11 points I'm going to make from excerpts from this letter that the board wrote and published on their website last Friday. In May of 2014, this is the senior pastor. In May of 2014, the board asked me to look for a book that was clearly grounded in Scripture that we might study on pastoring our brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of the LGBT community. We read Ken Wilson's A Letter to My Congregation. The book is rare in that it shows great empathy and maturity to model unity and patience with those who are in different places on this conversation. Now, in that this is in the first paragraph of the letter, you might be fooled into believing who he's speaking of is the LGBT community itself, but he's not. He's speaking to those in his church that might still want to cling to that old embarrassing aspect of marriage being only between a man and a woman because that's what he goes on to share. But he now says that this book showed great empathy and maturity to model unity. God is bringing LGBT Christians through the doors of City Church. As you read this, perhaps you, your friend, or family member are one of them. They desire to know Jesus and are eager to live faithfully to the gospel and desire spiritual growth. They desire to live faithfully. They're eager to grow, but apparently they don't want to abandon their unbiblical lifestyle. Next point. Our pastoral practice of demanding lifelong celibacy, by which we mean that for the rest of your life, you would not engage your sexual orientation in any way, was causing obvious harm. In fact, over the years, the stories of harm caused by this pastoral practice began to accumulate. Our conversations and social science research indicated skyrocketing rates of depression, suicide, and addiction among those identifying themselves as LGBT. 
So he's saying we have been way too harsh and uncompromising in the way in which we minister to these folks. Then he goes on. While members of the LGBT community have always been welcome at City Church, so now he's saying they've always been welcome. They haven't been on the outside. We prevented people from joining our church if they were unwilling or unable to practice lifelong celibacy. So they'd been heavy in the attendance at this church, just not members. And I could not find out on their website if they provide communion to non-members. They might. It's very likely that they do. Many churches, even in a Reformed community, practice open communion, totally open communion. You don't even have to be a member of a church. And so what these people wanted was membership, which really had very little or no privileges in this church. But yet they insisted on having it, and they were being treated as second-class citizens apart from it. We believe the thrust and focus of the gospel is the breaking down of former boundaries of exclusion and the expanding of the welcome of Jesus to all. Now note what they're saying. It is not the sin of the LGBT people that are separating us. It's our own rules. It's our own practice of not accepting them into membership. Scholars and leaders who have previously been united in their interpretations are coming to different conclusions. This does not mean that your view must change, but it does counsel humility with, with how we each hold our views. Now, this is the sentence that really gets me. This does not mean that you must change your views, but it does counsel humility. What they're saying is shut your mouths if you oppose this because it's now the law of the land. That's exactly what they're saying in really, really willy-willy, willy-nilly words here. So now, like the rest of our church, our elders and pastors bring a variety of perspectives to this, but we are unified in our desire to stay together in community and mission. Our board and pastoral staff have agreed that our practice will err on the side of grace and inclusion. Now, here's a true statement. Their practice will err. I agree with that statement. So they say here they are unified in their desire to stay together. But let me read you something that occurs a few, a few paragraphs down. One sad piece of news. Two of our elders, Tyler Dan and Bruce Gregory, resigned from the board. They had eight elders. Two of the eight elders resigned because of this policy change. And yet they're unified. Apparently now they are since they kicked out those that were not unified. We want to be clear what this now means. We will no longer discriminate based on sexual orientation and demand lifelong celibacy as a precondition for joining. Now listen to this. They're not demanding celibacy. For all members, regardless of sexual orientation, we will continue to expect chastity in singleness until marriage. So you can see what they're doing. They're jumping on the same-sex marriage bandwagon. And they're saying that in order for you to be a valid member of this church now, if you're gay, you must get married. The board would like to invite, now this is in going forward, this is under the caption going forward. The board would like to invite you into this discussion in safe settings where all can voice disagreement, concern, pushback, agreement, and discovery. I want you to note the progression of that. Where all can voice disagreement, concern, pushback, 
agreement and discovery. So see, we're all on a path of discovery. That's where we're all going to wind up, at least those of you that stay, because those of you that don't want to accept this are going to follow the other two elders out the door. I want to be clear. I am not asking you to change your mind. We can do this. We can hold our views with humility and respect others. Again, shut your mouths if you oppose this policy or you're out. I think this is a masterpiece of propaganda. I, I, I just was astounded at how devious. I, I believe, I, now I know that the uh, homosexual activists are so good at this, at producing documents like this. I have no doubt that homosexual activists assisted this pastor in the writing of this letter. I mean, this is just way too smooth. That is a big church. It's sad. It's like a thousand people church. They've got like seven or eight pastors, apparently now only six elders. I don't know if they're losing any pastoral staff, but they might. Although, see, a pastor, because it's his livelihood, is very reluctant to go against this because they would lose their job like that, and then they need to go find work. So they might still lose some pastoral staff, but perhaps not immediately. And actually, for the most part, they probably are all on, on board with it. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about this in the context of having a rebuttal to this beautiful letter that I just read excerpts from, and I'm going to read to you from Hebrews chapter 13. I'll start at verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So see, we have God's word to portray to us truth. Truth doesn't change. So God will judge heretics, and the heresies of our age are no different than they have been through all ages. It's just in our modern time where the modern church seems to be seizing upon everything as if it's brand new. But it's not. All sin is old. All sin has been around since very, very early. That's why God destroyed those, that early world because men had become so good at evil. 13.5 Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, City Church made this change because of discontent, if you noticed in what I'd read. They've totally turned it upside down. Christians are counseled to be content in their circumstances, and yet these LGBT Christians would re refuse to be content, even though they were welcomed with open arms at this church. They were just not allowed to be members, which frankly I doubt had any significance in their world. But they were very discontent. And the church said this, our practice of demanding celibacy is causing harm to these people. So bringing the word to bear in their lives is causing them harm, therefore we will no longer do it. God's word causes us pain, causes us no harm. But even us, 
It causes pain. Why is that? Because the old man within us that is being crucified by the Word of God cries out in pain, saying, let me go. Let me go. And this church has a policy of saying, of course, we can't bring this pain into your life. We will refrain. And as a matter of fact, we're now accepting and seeing that we've been going about this all wrong. The church has been going about this all wrong forever. So see, God's Word addresses Rob Bell and this city church in San Francisco and Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey asked Bell back when he released his book, Zimzum of Love, if the church would someday accept same-sex marriage, and this is what he said. Culture is already there, and the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. I agree. God is a very patient God, very loving God. You know, we can pray that Rob Bell will one day eat these words and we'll see him in heaven, but he's got a lot of words to eat at this point. Let me read to you from verse 8 and 9 of Hebrews 13. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. See, the leadership in that church said that we cannot restrain LGBT membership from these folks. But yet, what the Word of God says is we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. That is membership. That's what membership is supposed to do. It separates the people that are in membership with the church and thus with God from those that are not. We welcome unbelievers into our midst, but they must not, must not become members until they can abide by what Scripture binds us by in love, and that is His Word. God's Word addressed Rob Bell, Oprah Winfrey, the elders at this church. And let me read you some more from Hebrews 10. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. And that, again, he's contrasting any religion apart from the gospel of grace. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. So see, we live at a time when the patience with the conservative church, such as we are regarded, is waning. And the activists have every intention of pursuing us with vigor. And I just encourage you to gird up for the fight. Don't think that you will be saved by a benevolent government, because we won't. It is that government that will bring power to bear eventually upon us. 
And frankly, at Union Pacific, as an elder here, and yet looking forward to a retirement package from Union Pacific that I supposedly will have earned, I don't know if I'm going to get it, honestly. We'll see. But yet I have nine years to wait until, I, until that day, and I am not going to be silent on this topic, even though my company would prefer that I be. Now, I'm not going to go picking fights at work, that's for sure, but I am going to continue to proselytize against homosexuality in this pulpit and others. So see, City Church is tossing out the saints and making members of the sinners. But this has happened before. When you listen to Judges and Joshua and First and Second Samuel and Kings, you see that this repeats itself over and over and over and over again. So see, let's not be fearful. Let's depend upon God. Let's rely upon God. It is God that will save the day. No benevolent government. Now this message began by emphasizing the importance of obedience in God's world. The disobedience of Adam cost all of us our souls, but the obedience of Christ unto death redeemed them for us. And he restores us to a right relationship with God such that we can benefit from that relationship here and now in this body as well as in the world to come. It is easy to become discouraged in this life because we fail a lot. And yet we forget that our failures remind us of who is the victor. Our failures, our, our weakness, exhibit God's strength. They showcase His strength. Wolves prowl around this flock. Wolves prowl around all flocks. And in many flocks, they're members. That's what's so sad. And yet, we diligently want to shepherd this flock such that there are no member wolves. We attempt to do that. But we also need to be as open and embracing as God is. And we will apply God's word to every situation. So see, God's word is our sure defense. God's word is relevant and addresses all of our cares in this earth. It is not a 2,000-year-old uh, letter that has no bearing in our society. God's word will be relevant when city church folds eventually. God's word will be relevant when these letters are 3,000 years old or 4,000 years old. And Rob Bell is, is probably has his ashes scattered in some uh, island or something. Who knows? He's an odd guy. Maybe he'll spread them in a garbage dump. But I'm sure he'll have himself cremated. I mean, it's just logical. So now, let's close by saying this. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the power of Your Word to crush all opposition, and yet You apply it at times so sparingly and so lightly in our society that we long for the day when it will prevail 
And yet, Lord, this is just indicative of your love for us, your patience with us. And we ourselves know that we were often on the wrong side of things. And so we repent, Lord, of wanting you to act hastily. But we do pray, Father, for justice. We pray that your word will prevail on this earth. And especially that true Christians, Christians that have your spirit in them, will read your word and live by your word. We pray, Lord, we vow to do that, and we pray that all Christians would vow to do that. This is our calling. This is our purpose. We thank you. This is our prayer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.